Hello there. Welcome to Greenfluence, the podcast that brings you the latest in sustainability, responsible investing, and climate change. I'm Sarah, your podcast editor, and I'm very excited to bring you another episode. It's been a little while, but we're back and we're buzzing to be sharing some fantastic conversations each week with you. This is our seventh episode, Can You Believe It? And it is also the first part of our finale to season one. Part two will be released soon after this, and then season two will kick off. There's plenty more to come, and we're looking forward to you joining us, a fellow Greenfluencer. In this episode, your hosts, Mai and Biss, chat with Dean Rad, a social impact investment associate at the New South Wales Treasury in Australia. This conversation is filled with tidbits of knowledge and fantastic stories about Dean as a socially conscious numbers enthusiast. So much so that this is only part one of two episodes with Dean. In part one, we'll follow why Kid Dean thought stocks were as cool as Pokemon and learn from his adventures as a uni student and a young grad in the finance industry. You have an amazing bio and it's no doubt that anyone that knows you know that you are passionate about people and you're a real people person. So why did you choose to study finance which is sort of statistics and numbers? And can you tell us more about the opportunities that led to? Absolutely. So it's yeah, great to speak to yourself, Maya, and meet yourself finally, Vis, and thank you for the invitation to join your podcast. For me, what got me into finance is maybe slightly different to what inspires most. I think a lot of people think about finance and they think about money and they think about investing and they think that sometimes that's where the big bucks are at. And I won't name a student society, but I remember a few years ago, like seeing a student society promote their, it wasn't the university we attend, but promote their finance society, again, won't name it. But they were saying they had a whiteboard and they were going on O day or O week or open day and they are saying, like, why do you want to join this finance society? Why do you want to study finance? And, you know, you're getting like very generic, maybe expected type answers. And like even some people were putting like, oh, I want to be like the Wolf of Wall Street. I'm like, did you watch that film? Do you know that person like scams a lot of people out there hardworking, like hard-earned money? I can reassure you that wasn't my motivation. That wasn't me who contributed to that whiteboard. But for me, it's actually something quite different. It, it goes is, is sparked by a number of you know events and in my life. And I remember as a kid, maybe like even around ages of 10, 11, 12, being interested in finance. And that's a weird thing because most like other kids were interested in Pokemon and stuff at the time. And I was interested in that too. Don't get me wrong. But at that time, I, I was really fortunate. I had my grandfather, who, who's a humble uh, farmer from the Hunter Valley. What he used to do is once a year on our birthday, he would you know sell one cow and put that money into equities, into shares. And because he's from the Hunter Valley, I didn't get to see him very often. I maybe saw him once every quarter. And every time I'd see him, he would print off, and this was pre-2007, so this would, be, would have been 04, 05, 06. He would print off a ComSec statement, and as a 10-year-old, I'd read the ComSec statement, and there was always more money, like 
just out of nowhere. It's like the dollar sign, the, the dollar sign and the number next to it just kept on increasing. And and a part of me, like the, the 10-year-old in me who thought, you know, $2 was a lot of money because it got me a lot at the canteen back in the day. <laughs> Inflation is transitory. No, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> a part of me was things like, wow, what are these like magical things called shares? They just keep up, keep on going up in value. And obviously pre-2007 was a great time. It was a boom time. And that sparked my interest in, in the concept of investing. At a very similar time to that happening, you may recall there was a really wonderful and inspiring film uh, called The Pursuit of Happiness. Um, so The Pursuit of Happiness features and stars Will Smith and he's playing Chris Gardner. So Chris Gardner, uh, the plot of the story is Chris Gardner is a salesperson. He's having a tough time um, with his life. He's juggling a lot family-wise, he's having his struggles, uh, which is a universal human experience. And as a part of the movie, he then walks past the front of what's probably somewhere along Wall Street and, and a man pulls up in a Ferrari. This man gets out of the Ferrari and Will Smith or Chris Gardner, who he's, play, he's playing, uh, says to the man in the Ferrari, he's like, oh, I've got two questions for you. Like, what do you do and, like, how do I do it? Or something along those lines. And, and the, the man who has a Ferrari says, oh, I'm a, I'm a stockbroker. And then Chris Gardner or Will Smith gets a bit deflated and says, oh, a stockbroker, like, I need to go to university for that, don't I? And then uh, the man with a Ferrari is like, no, you just need to be good with people and good with numbers. And yeah, Will Smith makes the joke, you know, about borrowing his car and the other guy jokes back about, you know, he has to look after the parking meter as a result. And then they go on and then sort of there's that cinematic panning across the crowd and everyone's smiling and happy and they're all suited up and they all look successful. And then Will Smith asks, why doesn't my life look, look like that? And then it like cuts to the next scene and it's like his like kid in this really sort of, you know, like, you know, not clean childcare situation and, yeah, struggling family situation. And, yeah, like that scene as a kid and alongside like seeing, like having that experience with, you know, the concept of shares and equities, I, like, I sort of knew already like that's what I wanted to to do, to, to engage in finance. And then from there uh, when I got into high school, like 07, 08, 09 came and then, like on the news, people were like losing their minds about the stock market and this global financial crisis. And when you're a kid, you're sort of thinking to yourself, like, why is this a big issue? Because, you know, you, you sort of know that there's a war going on in Iraq or Afghanistan, but all in the news is this, like, like why is this so important? Like, wouldn't those issues be like what the news should be covering? And mm. it's sort of then... Yeah, it sparked my interest more because I sort of saw the systematic importance of of finance. But alongside all of that, like again, like it's kind of weird having all these thoughts as a kid. I'm pretty sure it was 2006. Like so, all these things were happening, and and even at a young age, I had a pretty strong sense of social justice. Like I was thinking to myself, like how is this useful? Like making money. Like how does this? How can this contribute positively to the world? And I'm pretty sure it's 2006. I saw. You know, the Nobel Peace Prize winner um, be awarded to Muhammad Yunus. And Muhammad Yunus was the founder of the Grameen Bank. And as a fun trivia fact, the Grameen Bank is the only company in the world that's won the Nobel Peace Prize. And Muhammad Yunus and the Grameen Bank won the Nobel Peace Prize because of their work promoting and developing microfinance. So taking this concept of finance 
and access to credit and making or giving people access to credit who are deemed not creditworthy by you know, traditional capitalist type structures. So he's from Bangladesh and his developing part of the world, the people that were deemed not creditworthy were typically you know, poor people who, who were women and, and those were the people he, he targeted straight at the start um, with the Grameen Bank and you know, has impacted you know, millions of lives positively um, since. So sort of knowing, like having that sort of you know, initial engagement at a young age, a formulative age, uh, along with knowing that this could be used for good was what actually sort of became the catalyst for me to, you know, be committed to this, you know, career pathway from the beginning. So, yeah, it started before university, surprisingly, and, um, yeah, we're still on the path now, which is fantastic. Is that your journey has been focused on, you know, what the impact of finance can have instead of the more greedy, selfish view of being a wolf on Wall Street. And I think that keeps you motivated and passionate throughout your whole career. Um, if we can return back to when you started university, we know that you were involved in a lot of extracurricular activities and probably well known from being part of the business society in Rotary. Um, can you explain to some of the listeners and what experiences helped enrich your experience and perhaps even shape your future career path? Yeah, I've been really spoiled when it comes to these things. Uh, just, I guess, <laughs> looking back on it, the, 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 the things that you named now, like they're, they're probably things that I'm more involved with now in terms of volunteering or I get the invitations to speak, speak and present at. Um, when I was at university, though, what, what I was involved in those times, there was a couple that, was, that were really wonderful. There was UN Youth, um, and they're still quite active and involved across you know, all universities in Australia. So they have a really great cohort of progr- programs that look to promote you know, democracy and diplomacy internationally and educate young people on those topics. Uh, and there's a really great community based around that. Uh, another one was actually, and this was one that really positively impacted me, and I still have some connection to today, I guess, given where I am now in the public sector, um, was I participated and then helped volunteer and lead this program called YMCA uh, New South Wales Youth Parliament. And that was a really great program because I taught three things that helped teach um, leadership. Uh, alongside that, it helped teach advocacy, so it sort of encouraged the participants you know, to advocate on issues and learn about issues and come up with solutions to problems that exist for, you know, young people, you know, within the state of New South Wales. And and then also the parliamentary education part. So it's like, you know, what is this existing structure of parliament and how is it used for impact? So those were probably the two that really um, were the largest for me during my time at university. But it's quite funny because during university as well, these were the sorts of causes that I would spend my extracurricular time on like I didn't really apply for internships and things like that right probably when it was too late <laughs> in all honesty uh, I was so caught up in all these like progressive causes because it was what I valued I wasn't really interested in you know some of the other you know societies at the time and you mentioned the business society they weren't as appealing to me at the time because uh at, maybe at the time I perceived you know some of the community like you know, individuals within some of those communities just to be very career orientated and not really care about about much else but 
now uh, whilst those other causes were you know like there was a, a community that had a set of shared values and were passionate about a similar cause and that's what attracted me to those and I remember um, having a mentoring session with one academic from the uh, accounting department and she she said that my like when we're talking about you know careers and things like that she said my resume was too left-wing and progressive you know for the industry uh, and that would have been maybe 2013-14 so you know just under 10 years ago and, and it's funny now because I can tell you all these experiences that I've had, I wouldn't be in the position I am now, like within the social impact investment space if it wasn't for that. So it's amazing how that sort of occurred. But at the same time, like the concept of being a social impact investment associate didn't even exist 10 years ago. But now it's sort of one of the careers of the future. The the friends that you have after university as well, like you, university is great because you spend a lot of time you know, with people of similar ages and aspirations, but I've noticed the friendships that have really endured beyond have been the ones where there is a shared, you know, aspiration, there is a shared set of values and, you know, you're sort of on the same journey together beyond, you know, the chapter of university. You, you do take that next step together and, yeah, I, I can't understate the importance of that. That's so true. It goes back to the idea of building your identity capital as well during university and mm. those causes and things that you do go towards who you are, really. Both this and I have studied applied finance during university and during that degree, there was very little focus on social outcomes in finance. So where did this concept of measuring impact and exploring ESG come into your focus? Yeah, well, 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 Talking about how things have changed since, since say, 2013, 14, I, I studied the, the course applied finance prior to year. So you can maybe only imagine <laughs> that it was, yeah, less aligned to sort of where, you know, all of us are at now. However, one thing I, I will credit, um, and there's actually a lot to credit about, you know, Macquarie University and our experiences. One thing I will credit was when I was at Macquarie, we had this concept of doing people and planet units. And they were actually essential and enforced across the curriculum of every single degree. And what those units involved was like, you have to do something outside your discipline. So outside for me, outside of finance and economics, or maybe for yourself, my outside of finance and law, you have to do something outside of your discipline that has a people lens. And you also have to do another unit that has a planet lens. And what's sort of been fascinating about that is, I've taken like my discipline of finance and economics, but I've actually applied it to both people and planet. Like the social impact investments we make are primarily based on social outcomes. And then the sustainability bonds program that we have here at New South Wales Treasury, that's based on, you know, how can we improve our planet? It's sort of funny looking back on like a lot of people may sort of resent having to, you know, have, not be have this, like a greater amount of electives, for example, to do whatever units, but the fact that this was actually a part of the degree structure of Macquarie at the time when I was studying actually bared fruit and value later on. And I think, yeah, that emphasis on focusing on, or like there's a big emphasis on like interdisciplinary learning uh, for one, but then alongside that, having that sort of focus on you know, engaging in some learning about people and planet 
probably helps to enable and create graduates to be a bit more you know, socially and environmentally minded. And that's one positive that I would say that's come out of, you know, studying at Macquarie. And whilst there's probably, yeah, I, I, similar to yourselves, I didn't have the opportunity to focus on impact me- measurement in terms of my finance degree. Like I learned a lot about, you know, how to calculate expected financial returns, but not so much or anything along the lines of social returns. Uh, I, yeah, I think maybe you can make an argument in terms of economics. There was that opportunity, but yeah, it wasn't compulsory. Like you'd have the essential micro, macro economics and econometrics like underpin the course. And it was pretty much up to the students' discretion. Did they want to go into topics that were more aligned to financial economics or do they want to do environmental economics where that opportunity would have been available? Um but yeah, there, there there was definitely a set time. I'd be really interested to know like what exists now. And I know mm-hmm. some universities have or one university has announced like a social impact major within one of their like primary courses, whether it's arts or commerce, I can't quite recall. But yeah, I think there's a movement towards that and mm-hmm. sort of you know, with increase increasing requirements around environmental compliance in terms of like what's happened just recently with COP26 and you know, sort of ESG lenses applied to business performance and performance of management and leadership and directors in terms of, you know, publicly listed companies, like all these sorts of things will help drive more a focus on, you know, measuring the impact, you know, of those social returns. Just to add to your point, they recently introduced sort of a capstone project at Macquarie University um, for finally a commerce students. And that's actually run by um, our good friend and lecturer, Prashan, as you know, and basically, yeah, Prashant Karunaratne, he's a, yeah, a fantastic lecturer. Yeah. And I, yeah, I used to sit front row for his microeconomic lecture. <laughs> so, if Prashant's listening to this, you're, you're a superstar, mate. Keep up good work. He's actually a big fan of Greenfluence, I hope. So, well, I'm pretty sure he is. Um, so, that's really good. And yeah, essentially, that course is linked to the SDG goals. So, I think there's definitely been a lot of movement and progression in terms of how social impact is taught at uni, which I think is really awesome. Uh, that's 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 good good use of a, a growing thematic. So well done to Prashan and, and, and Macquarie University. Now let's move on to looking at your early corporate experiences at um, shape of your future direction. And one of the earliest was your time at Comic and Minolta, where you were involved in ethical supply chain management, um, which involved considering factors such as human rights. What insights did you get from this experience um, and did it change your view of finance and your pathway? What was great about that, Smith, I'll be completely honest and transparent. It was only a short-term internship, so I didn't get the huge immersive experience uh, and learning that I've been fortunate enough to get in subsequent roles. What enabled the opportunity itself was uh, Clinic Minolta, they were working on their ethical sourcing roadmap during 2016. And that roadmap, they had really great qualitative thought and processes put into it, but they didn't have this quantitative sort of data to underpin or pack onto the plan itself. So that's where I came in. We had a really fantastic um, manager looking after that who 
yeah, sort of needed that skill. So that's where I came in with, you know, my <laughs> Excel skills and such um, to help assist and, and the finance background and such. But the ethical sourcing roadmap itself, it wasn't so much um, aligned to like the financial side of the business, but it was more so like how do we incorporate human rights considerations into the supply chain? And what's really interesting and pioneering about Conic Minolta having done that was they preempted what's become a global trend. The whole concept of, you know, integrating human rights considerations into your um, supply chain, you know, they were leading governments on that and, and that's shown by it wasn't until 2018, for example, the Modern Slavery Act uh, came into force across the Commonwealth of Australia. So that act, it requires, you know, some entities to report on the risks of you know, modern slavery and operations and supply chains and what are the actions that are going to be taken to address those risks. That's what the legislation is for. But the fact that they could, they had the sort of vision and commitment, and again, it's testament to them as a socially minded organisation to do so, um, shows that how business can lead government. Mm. And in recognition of that, in the same year, at the end of 2018, uh, Conoco and uh, for their ethical sourcing um, roadmap plan, they actually were awarded the Human Rights Award for 2018 in the business category by the um, Australian Human Rights Con uh, Commission. So it's really awesome that I had the opportunity through Macquarie University to you know, work with this partner organisation to contribute to this plan, which you know has gone on to receive you know, national attention and mm. successful you know, commitment to human rights and you know, play a very small part in that and, you know, help preempt what's, you know, become almost expected, you know, from a regulation perspective, both domestically and internationally. And the, the people that really helped drive that as well were, there was a wonderful lady called Laura McManus, who's now a human rights manager at Woolworths and um, Dr. David Cook as well. He, he's the, he, he used to be the CEO and managing director of, um, Conquer and Alter Australia, but now is actually the chair of the UN Global Impact Network for Australia and is involved in UNSW's Human Rights Institute and um, does his own ESG and advisory business as well. Um, so, yeah, maybe those are two awesome uh, people to connect with in that space if you are wanting to go towards a human rights lens mm. um, across business. It's actually quite insightful that you had such an early experience in this. And I think we encourage all our listeners to go out there and even get a glimpse of these different mm. careers and experiences that you know are beyond the the normal roots in finance. Most definitely. I think I might jump in in terms of advice as well. Like there's one issue that exists for university students is uh, you know engaging in, for example, unpaid internships. Um, and there's, you know, some for, I think there's some for-profit employers which uh, are exploitative of that, unfortunately. But I think if you are going to engage in an unpaid internship particularly, absolutely try and, like, find, you know, if it's unpaid and there's no profit, like, try and find something for purpose to mm. contribute and explore your skill set with. So, like, a, another opportunity I had was to do, like, a finance internship but with a international NGO over in India through university. So that was restless development. That was the cause. So, you know, the opportunity to like do that is like, yeah, you have, there's a net positive as opposed to just, you know, 
you know, improving someone's bottom line because you've provided unpaid labour. It does take time to learn and skill up and that's kind of the trade-off sometimes And when unpaid internships are pitched by professional organisations or for-profit organisations. But I think you have to weigh that up very considerately and carefully, especially when you could do something similar and achieve something for purpose in the process. So I think that's what I'd lean towards and encourage students to consider. And I probably didn't consider that actively enough back, back in the day. When you start off in a career, having good leaders and having good mentorship is really important. So I think that moves well to the next sort of section, which is your professional experience, I guess, more broadly. So you began at Macquarie Group in 2017. And I think Macquarie Group, for all students among the finance industry, it's one of those really big players. It's like we hear about it all the time and they do like a lot of work with a lot of big clients. And I'm guessing it would have been such an exciting time for you, um, I guess, I guess towards the end of university and to sort of starting a career. So what was the experience like and what were the challenges working in that fast-paced environment? Yeah, again, I think everyone sort of gets um, a bit starry-eyed <laughs> in a way when it comes to the, the brand of Macquarie, especially like as an Australian finance institution because they are Australia's leading investment bank um, in terms of market share and like domestically. And, yeah, they're, they're our greatest success story um, as a financial institution globally. <laughs> However, some in the fintech space might say Afterpay is coming for that lunch. But <laughs> if you look at market cap, they're still well above Macquarie and continuing to grow rapidly. Maybe another part of that is like they've got that sort of um, the AFR particularly likes to give them the label of the millionaires factory. And, and that was us saw there. They've got like their executive team is amongst some of the highest paid uh, Across execs across the ASX that that was uh, featured over the last week or so, but despite that sort of millionaires factory tag, I was really surprised with how progressive, inclusive, and family fit, like friendly that workplace was. And to give you a, a couple of examples of that, when I was working there during 2017, I believe that was when marriage equality was the big social debate at that time. And you may recall that the government instead of doing a plebiscite or something along those lines, they did like a national survey. So everyone who could vote had an opportunity to, you know, flag their opinion, yes or no. And, you know, at Macquarie, that was like, they were like strongly advocating for marriage equality. Like you, they had, a, you know, they even had somewhere where, you know, instead of, you know, you putting it into the mail, they had their own mailbox with like, oh, yes. And, you know, you could put your little, Letter in the rainbow box, for example. Um, yeah, and and some people might have some oppositions to to that in terms of you know business taking a political standpoint. But again, it just was a, like a really surprisingly progressive culture and very inclusive culture in terms of like the societies that they had and the the commitment they had to supporting those societies. They've obviously got great financial means and. It's good to see that they apply those financial resources to you know all the initiatives that happen throughout the year, you know, across the whole diversity inclusion calendar, whether it's multicultural day in May, a march through to every other sort of day that, that exists. Um, but looking yeah, beyond that as well, like in terms of the family, like friendly, I've actually never, still to this day, never worked in a workplace that is more family friendly than Macquarie. 
uh, I remember during all the school holidays, like they would have actually at the office itself, like where there's normally big conference rooms, those would be turned during the school holidays into like childcare. Oh, wow. <laughs> and they would run, yeah, and they'd run like really amazing programs like code camps for kids and such. So they'll have these code camps and I don't have a kid, but I've got a younger brother who's 15 years younger than me. And, and yeah, they were like even happy for me to, you know, bring him in as a, a primary school kid to wow. you know, come and engage in code camp. And like they had different related sort of sports days where they'll bring like professional athletes to come mm. coach kids on, on sports. And wow. yeah, all these things really took me some by surprise. And I think that sort of, that really does help enable flexible working. And this was before flexible working was mm. a big concern because it's, you know, every corporation's hand was forced by, you know, COVID and lockdown and restrictions and such. Yeah, so that was one thing that, you know, caught me by surprise. And I think as well at the time, like they had just in, uh, acquired the Green Investment Group or the Green Investment Bank. Banking group always gets used interchangeably when it comes to Macquarie for that area. But I think for, in terms of going back to your original question, the challenge as well that I faced is that when I began my career with Macquarie, I started within the wealth, uh, Macquarie's wealth management operations and whilst I love the company and the culture and the role, my sort of primary focus was on products and processes. Whilst I think I'm more passionate, or I know I'm more passionate about people and projects, and that was a primary driver to to move into my next role at, at PwC. It just goes to show like how that whole idea of like a big corporation is changing, and I think. Macquarie did this pre-COVID. So I think now many companies would, I guess, be following suit and it would be a lot more family friendlier and a lot more flexible. And that's awesome. And you did touch on how like you did move and make the transition out to PwC, which, you know, is one of the world's biggest professional service companies and everyone, everyone's heard of the big four and, and things like that. Uh-huh. So I'd like to hear a bit more about, I guess, the clients you work with and your time as a consultant and whether you did have exposure to ESG and other types of responsible investing, I guess, while you were there. Like I never would have imagined in my sort of short space of time, um, you know, that I have the opportunity to provide assurance for, you know, Australia's leading venture capital firms who've backed you know, some of the most successful startups, I think your canvas and such, or assist, you know, in the, the tax affairs of, you know, Australian individuals uh, and families. But then, you know, continuing on, on, on more the corporate finance side, you know, doing deep dives and understanding what drives value for and performing valuations uh, for everything from African gold mines to Australian wineries to, American pet grooming franchises and everything in between, like, <laughs> like just understanding what what makes their business valuable in society and, and why are investors willing to allocate capital to those businesses and the amount that I learned during those three plus years um, across the absolute most broadest range of clients was so so valuable and I couldn't there yeah, look back on that learning experience more positively enough in terms of, you know, what, like the breadth of learning that I got to engage in. And going on to the ESG side of things, that, that's an interesting one because I think at the time, <laughs> like I was, so I worked at Macquarie, uh, not Macquarie, I worked at PwC from 2018 to 2021. And like, I, I think in the organisation itself, I was a bit of an agitator for ESG and trying to push the dial on the issue. And I would like 
engage with, I'd, you know, I'd try and engage with you know, the social impact team. I'd try to engage and see where I could get involved there or, you know, try and network with like the economics and policy team who are doing socially let, like, you know, working on projects with a social lens and, and, and those sorts of things. And the opportunities never really came up to engage in that space fully, even despite my like internal push. And maybe I can afford, you say, some benefit of the doubt because I was there during all the COVID disruptions and there was a big concern at the time about, you know, those firms having work um, and billable hours ready to be obtained with clients because of all the uncertainty, particularly from March 2020 onwards. And I think maybe a lot of those opportunities did get put in the back burner. But it's funny because as soon as I left, this <laughs> as soon as I left the a lot of those organ like PwC and and the big four broadly they then announced that ESG is one of their strategic pillars like within so from the deals team that I, I left that there's now an ESG MA team wow and they regularly hide like they they are obviously expanding and you know my LinkedIn obviously sort of sees my experience and what I do now and the algorithms just shoot big four ESG MA opportunities at me, like impact strategy opportunities. Yeah, I think I think there's probably been an awakening this year within the big four in that space. And I think if I hadn't, you know, joined the Treasury in my current role, I think there would be really great scope for for me to lead in that space. But I guess you know timing's everything, right? <laughs> yeah, that's that's so true. <laughs> so um, yeah, despite that, did did engage wherever I could with the you know the charity opportunities and such. But sort of actual social impact, billable work was was limited at the time. I think it's very clear. It's very clear um, from my eyes, at least, that um, I guess the idea of merging of merging purpose and profit is very important to you, and it's an area that um, you know I find. I find very fascinating too. And I think purpose is what I want to put as the forefront of my career. So based on like your own experiences, are there particular sectors and areas that you think are making the most impact? And I guess we're seeing this trend already, but how can we encourage our large corporations to focus more on purpose? Uh, I know you, yourself and Maya, that you've both touched on climate tech. If it's not on this podcast within within your green influence community. So I won't touch on that. And given you sort of refer to my experiences, I would probably say the superannuation sector would be the one that is closest to home to me in terms of what they've been doing and the impact that they've been having. So you've had the sort of disruptors come in, you know, many years ago um, who are on the fringe and probably not front of mind, uh, like Australian Ethical um, or Future Super. And... It's only been like the last couple of years where there's been like a like a really strong investment type uh, appetite for these type of companies, uh, these type of fund managers, and there's been huge capital flows towards them and their you know, investment approaches because they incorporate responsible investment into their investment approaches. The bigger superannuation companies really pitch themselves with a similar lens too, and I think. The biggest one that comes to mind is Aware Super. Um, so Aware Super used to be first state super. They've done the rebrand. If you watch any of the Aware Super ads, 
they very much advertise that they're, you know, investing and trying to align to profit. You know, you can sort of see that with some of the policies as well. I'm pretty sure Aware Super was one of the first people in the finance industry to um, introduce, and I might get this wrong and I'm definitely not the most appropriate person to talk about gender affairs, but I think they were the first, one of the first in the finance industry to introduce like menstrual leave or like leave for, for women with menopause, for example. So like not only are they they're advertising and pitching themselves as being, you know, socially aligned and impact aligned, or maybe not impact aligned, but at least socially aligned and environmentally aligned. They're investing in a lot of infrastructure to generate returns for their members, which is aligned accordingly as well. So from my experience, particularly in my previous uh, role in the, in the PwC deals team, a lot of the infrastructure assets that we were working um, for and performing valuations for, they were in like, you know, whether it's renewable energy or, you know, other sort of social used to be publicly owned assets that have community benefit. It's like it's the super funds that are, you know, fighting tooth and now to to bid for those assets and to allocate capital to those assets because of the, you know, the long run fixed income type nature of some of the returns of those infrastructure type assets um, having sort of bond-like characteristics in a way, in a hybrid way, you know, the fact that they deliver a public good to and it's sort of, you know, similar to like those CBUS ads where they talk about their, their building, you know, the buildings of Australia, like not just, you know, generating returns for investors, like those those sorts of things. So I think, yeah, the Australian superannuation space, yeah, driving a lot of change in this space and given how important and big superannuation is in Australia because it's mandated, um, you know, everyone who earns a salary or over a certain amount gets paid super. Um, there's a huge pool of capital to be allocated to, you know, impact, you know, society broadly and, and generate financial returns in the process. So I'd say that's the case. And I think, you know, how can we, like, what can we do on the large corporations front? I think not only can we encourage, you know, capital allocation towards sustainable outcomes, but we should then further promote the you know, reporting of those impacts because it's sort of, yeah, it's great to you know, make investment decisions based on that, but then, you know, how are you measuring like the impact of that because, you know, things can become tokenistic otherwise. Yeah, definitely. I think on that point with super, it's really interesting because it's such an area of interest for young people because although we can't access it until a certain age like it's one of the ways that we can make an impact through our money and in the and it sort of reflects what values we have as well currently serve as the chief financial officer of the john mack foundation which is a non-for-profit that provides university scholarships to refugees so it's a very worthwhile cause and i'm sure that it aligns strongly with your values um how did you arrive in this position dean and how did your financial skill set prepare you for this role I was kind of a bit taken aback when the opportunity came as well, like to sort of be a chief financial officer for an Australian charity. It came about, and again, this is like testament to the importance of networks. It came about because um, someone I, I met you know, who, who's a former Clayton Utes lawyer, she, we, we met at a party of all places and we really connected because we were very, we were both socially aligned. And this goes to, you know, the, like, uh, is testament to, you know, how being you know, values alignment is probably the greatest thing in terms of long-term relationships and, and the ones that do endurance. 
she um, was involved in the cause as well as a lawyer. And there's a very strong um, legal community behind the John Mack Foundation. That's primarily because the founder of the or one of the co-founders of the John Mack Foundation is Denga Dutt. So Denga Dutt, his name may ring a bell, and he is quite prominent within New South Wales. He was the face of Western Sydney University actually in, in their ad campaign um, when they did their rebrand. And they shared his story where he was a child soldier in South Sudan. Um, and as crazy and as horrific as that would have been, he escaped, became a refugee, moved to Australia with no English, and then graduated to become you know, a lawyer from Western Sydney University and now runs his own firm. And with the John Mack Foundation, he um, then, like a part of the story is that, like John Mack, who the foundation's named after, he he helped him to you know escape South Sudan, and he was a John Mack himself was the first South Sudanese refugee to become a university graduate from Australia, and like going back to Deng because Deng has the legal background, he's attracted a lot of like a strong legal community to support the charity itself, and when. For a long time, the charity, a lot of the operations were done out of the Clayton Utes office, for example, which is one of Australia's big six law firms. And the incoming CEO back in 2019 um, was a lawyer herself. And one of the skill sets that the organisation was missing was a financial skill set, the ability to engage in just basic accounting and finance. And whilst it had some of the brightest brains across media and politics and and the law they didn't have that skill set and I was the closest person to her network who knew that I had a shared set of values to herself that was like okay like you've got the skill set you have this you know value set like you've got the attitude and aptitude is this something you'd like to do and for me uh, yeah it is something I love to do because you know we've talked a lot about education and university today and for me, one of my favourite quotes on the topic of education, uh, it comes from Malcolm X, and he says that, I have to get the right rhetoric so important, but he says that you know, education is the passport to our future for tomorrow belongs to those who prepare for it today. And, like, that quote itself, like, uh, if, there's, if there's one sentence you can, like, sell education on, it's that. Like, like uh, we all come from, you know, multicultural, diverse backgrounds, people from, you know, our ancestral homelands. Like that's been the biggest vehicle for transformation for life outcomes. Like it's, and I, I suspect for, you know, our parents, it's probably why we've been pushed down that path of education as well. And the opportunity to promote that for students who might not have the parental support that we would have had to you know, go down this path to provide scholarships to those students, to provide mentorship to those, you know, refugees from war-torn backgrounds who fortunately made it to Australia. You know, I've been, I, like, my life outcomes have been, trans, like, yeah, transcended thanks to uh, tertiary education and mm. the opportunity to offer that to people who are in much more need than myself was a no-brainer in a way. It's something I'm so proud to do uh, yeah. with the John Mack Foundation and, I think it's testament to for everyone who's listening to this podcast to think about like what is my unique skill set and how can I apply it to for purpose. 
And for me, like understanding how to prepare a balance sheet and a profit and loss statement, that, that's something that's really important. Like every Australian charity has to do that as a part of their obligations under the ACNC Act. But not every charity like probably has the expertise to do that. Most charities are made up of you know, grassroots volunteers who might be engaged more in social work or if they're in legal advocacy, like legal backgrounds. And, you know, it's, it's just considering like what is the unique skill set that you and I have or the listeners have? And how can I apply this to for purpose? And you know, if you have the opportunity and capacity to do so, to do this in your community, I'd highly encourage you to do so. How did you find part one with Dean? Does Dean's enthusiasm and persistence to place his passion for social justice in alignment with his career inspire you? It does for me. I'm definitely not a numbers person, so I'm truly grateful and extremely relieved that there are people like Dean who care about people and also want to use their finance skills to better society. I'm also really encouraged to hear about how different sectors of the finance industry are moving towards being more socially conscious of their broader impacts on you know, the greater community and the environment as well. We'd love to hear your thoughts, so feel free to reach out to us on Facebook and LinkedIn. Links will be in the show notes. Thank you for listening in today. We truly value you and your support. We're so encouraged by your interest in being a more environmentally conscious and proactive individual. I'll catch you in the next episode, part two with Dean Rad.